My dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And Jesus said, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, thus proving that our Lord has apparently never been to the Minnesota State Fair, <laughs> where I will be tomorrow. Um, where there are no less than 80 different culinary options served on a stick, and every one of them deep-fried, pretty much. Now, hear me out. These wonderfully tasty atrocities, from deep-fried Snicker bars to deep-fried bison ravioli to buffalo chicken doskits, you know what that is? It's spicy chicken dipped in donut batter, deep-fried, and then put on a stick. Mmm. Now, while they may defile my lower GI tract and blow my diet to smithereens, there is something that these foods will not do. They will not separate me as an unworthy outsider from my tribe. See? Because when I go to the fair, you know, my tribe will be all my fellow fairgoers, right? And the only culinary option that might cause a raised eyebrow would be maybe if I tried to eat a salad at the state fair. <laughs> Unless that salad were dipped in donut batter and <laughs> served on a stick, right? But the issues of ritual purity and defilement, who's part of us and who's not, who's in and who's out, who can stand in the presence of the holy and who is disqualified, right? These are the issues that are top of mind for a group of Pharisees and religious scholars that are questioning Jesus on why some of his followers aren't observing the traditions of kosher etiquette, right? In this case, the ritual washing of hands before meals. And I must admit to you that in my younger years, I was given to see these Pharisees and scribes in a pretty uncharitable way a very two-dimensional way, flat, just like the frowny-faced little characters in felt that my third-grade Sunday school teacher would put up on the flannel graph whenever she was telling us these stories from the Bible. It was easy to see them, these Pharisees and scribes, as the villains of the story, right? The obsessive rule keepers who were keeping their people and keeping us then from the true gospel. Well, perhaps my opinion of those Pharisees and your opinion of them too could stand a little sunshine. Now, if I were to call you a Pharisee, you'd be offended, right? But in actuality, you know, the Pharisees were simply a very religious people in a very religious culture. They understood their relationship with God to be mediated through some very tangible and very, very visible channels, correct worship and correct living with respect to the teachings of the Torah and the tradition of the elders, those who had come before them in the faith. And in the face of all of the other religious systems that were floating around these people in the Middle East at that time, the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious lawyers, living under Roman occupation, by the way, saw themselves as the defenders of the faith and thereby defenders of the holiness know, the otherness of Israel. If not for these Pharisees and their tenacity, 
worship of Yahweh might very well have disappeared from the face of the earth. At least that's what they assumed, right? And it's with that attitude that they questioned Jesus regarding this seemingly to us insignificant matter of washing before meals. They noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Well, historical study has revealed that Mark, in writing his gospel, may have overstated the case just a little bit with respect to what all the Jews did or didn't do. Um, local custom dictated by varying degree among the Jewish population how they interpreted the Jewish kosher laws. But be that as it may, to these particular Pharisees and scribes, this was important stuff. This was no Mickey Mouse issue. To them, those traditions, they marked the boundaries for them, right? The boundaries of what it meant to be a holy people trying to hang on to their identity in the midst of all sorts of temptations to abandon their Jewish identity. Hmm? They might say to themselves, today it's chucking aside the, you know, ignoring the rituals of washing before meals. The next thing you know it, we're sliding down that slippery slope and we're all of a sudden worshiping Satan. <laughs> Sound overdramatic? Maybe, but not to those defenders of their faith. Cynthia Campbell, who was once the president of McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago, says that the question that drove the Pharisees still motivates a lot of contemporary people of faith today. And it's an important question. In a religiously diverse culture, how does one hang on to one's holy identity and integrity? I'll say that again. In a religiously diverse culture, how does one hang on to one's holy identity and integrity? And I suspect that Jesus recognizes that that's really the question here. He senses that maybe, maybe the rules and the traditions of the elders, the outward signs of faith that for, were first intended to bind Israel to God, are now taking the place of that inward life of faith that God really wants for his people, a faith that doesn't simply advertise with the lips but actually lives itself out with the hands and the heart. A faith less concerned with the display of God's teaching and more concerned with whether or not those teachings are being walked in, followed, put into practice. I think Jesus sees the danger of a superficial piety, kind of a, you know, a religious identity politics, if you will. And he sees it and calls him on it. And he says, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, elevating human precepts and doctrine. What does our faith, our religious devotion, look like to the rest of the world? That's the question, right? In our worship, and in our living, not only what we do in here, but what we do out there in our life, does it make it easier for people to meet the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ or not? 
is God's unconditional love for and acceptance of broken people, visible and tangible through us. Because according to Jesus, that's all that matters. That's it. See, I think the good news today from Mark's gospel is there in the freedom that Jesus gives us. Traditions, right worship, they can be wonderful tools for us, but they're not the end game. In other words, it's not whether your hands are squeaky clean or whether they got a little dirt on them. It's what you do with those hands that matters. It's what comes out of your heart. It's not what goes into your mouth. And if the God of the universe takes up residence in our hearts, then we will be alive, you see. And so will our traditions. And so will our worship. Does Jesus set aside the law in this story? No, he does not. Does he chuck the tradition of the elders and tell them they shouldn't do those things? No, he didn't say that either. He simply reminds us of the end goal, which is living like people who are actually intimate with God and then are so concerned with the well-being of God's children around us. Whenever Jesus breaks one of the traditions, have you ever noticed that it's not for nothing? Hmm? Whenever he dares to touch a ritually defiled leper or schizophrenic, one of those who is interpreted as being possessed. He always does it for a reason, right? To heal and to restore. Whenever he breaks the Sabbath tradition, it's always to heal or to feed somebody. Whenever he touches a ritually defiled corpse, which was against the Jewish law, you'd be defiled for a period of time. Whenever he does that, it's always to raise that corpse back up. The warning, I think, is clear. Don't be sidetracked into worshiping something less than the God of life. I want you to picture in your mind a road, okay, a highway. Sometimes it's smooth and sometimes it's treacherous. Sometimes it's hilly, sometimes it's flat. And along that road, people have erected signs, right? They've erected signs to guide travelers toward the destination. But something strange is happening the signs. People are stopping at the signs, and they're commenting on them, saying things like, well, obviously our sign is much more helpful than their sign. Their sign's way too simple. It doesn't express any of the grandeur of our destination to which we're going. And others would say, well, your sign's so ornate and gaudy that it totally detracts from the destination it points to. They're crying out loud, look how big your sign is. And others are saying, well, our sign's obviously more helpful since it's written in the King James English and everybody knows that that's the language spoken at our destination. And others are saying, well, we can top that. Our sign's translated from the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, so there. (laughs) And others are saying, well, our sign's written by German theologians and sung to the tune of Johann Sebastian Bach. Yeah? And others saying, well, you can stop at our sign if you want to, and you can sing there, but you better not bring any musical instruments, because if you do, you can just get on down the road. And others are saying, well, if you belong to that other political party, don't even bother stopping at our sign. And the sign watching continues. And all the while, there's people lying in the ditches, starving, freezing, bleeding, dying.
That is defilement. That's what defilement is. The prophets have warned us about this, you know. <laughs> Jesus didn't just make this up. With what shall I come before the Lord or bow myself to God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, shall I make ostentatious, very public displays of my devotion? He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. That was the prophet Micah. Listen to what Amos says. Amos says, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I won't look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps. But instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We wouldn't want to forget James or his words to us from earlier this morning. Religion that is pure and undefiled is this, to care for widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In other words, live for the sake of the vulnerable. You know, as Christians, we have all sorts of wonderful traditions and this awesome diversity of how we worship and seemingly unlimited opportunities to witness to our faith. But our God is greater than our worship. And God's command to love is greater and far, far more powerful than any tradition we may lay on ourselves or on others. Earlier I quoted Cynthia Campbell, who said the question raised in this little dust-up with the Pharisees is how does one maintain a holy identity and integrity in a diverse world? She said that when we respond, we can do no better than Jesus did when he asked, what was the greatest of all God's commands? Love God, love neighbor. It's that simple. And it is that complex. I pray that our life as Christian people will be one that reflects our, our being bound to the God of compassion and mercy. Our world, our country, our community needs this from us, needs it desperately from us, an honest witness of what it means to be loved by Jesus. Amen.